Let's bow in prayer. Oh, Father, what a joy it is to bring our burdens and our requests to you. No matter what that burden may be, no matter how significant, you care. And you long to hear our prayers and to lift our spirits, to fill us with joy unspeakable and full of glory so that we might shine as a bright light in a world that is so dark. Bless us now as we go to your word for help and instruction, for inspiration, for rebuke and comfort. And may the God of the book, the Holy Spirit, take control. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me encourage you to open up your Bible to the book of Philippians and the fourth chapter, Philippians chapter 4. As you're turning there, I'll simply mention a few background details of this wonderful little epistle written by the Apostle Paul, who happens to be in prison. He had two imprisonments. The first is basically house arrest. It wasn't as bad as the second. He had the opportunity to have guests and visitors come to see him. He held Bible studies in which he shared the truth of Scripture and even witnessed to those who were in the palace and people were won to Christ. The Apostle Paul knew what it was to share the gospel uh, everywhere he went. And so in prison, he had purpose and he had direction. The people in Philippi were like a supporting church to a missionary. Paul was the missionary going out spreading the gospel and they sent money and support. But they were under persecution themselves, and times were hard, and they were discouraged. And so Paul writes this letter, first of all, to thank them for their gifts, and secondly, to encourage them in the midst of their difficulties. And so the idea of joy or rejoicing is mentioned time and time again. There are at least three commands to rejoice one in chapter 2, one in chapter 3, and again in chapter 4. So the prisoner said, rejoice, to the people who are being persecuted. You need to rejoice, which means whatever problems we may be facing still fill or fall under that category of rejoicing. We can triumph over our difficulties when we learn how to turn them over to the Lord. Let me begin reading in verse 2. Verse 1 is actually a summary statement from the previous chapter. A new thought has begun in verse 2 of chapter 4 when Paul says, I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Now, these are two ladies that were on staff of the church at Philippi. That is, they were serving in some regular capacity, some recognized position as servants of the gospel, but they had come into some disagreement. They were not on the same page. There was personal conflict, whatever the situation might have been, the catalyst. They were at odds with one another. So Paul says, I plead for you to get on the same page, Euodia and Syntyche. I want you to agree with each other in the Lord. You once served next to each other, and now you're fighting one another. Verse 3, yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow. The Greek word is sujigas, which happens to be a personal name. 
I kind of think it's better to translate it sujigas. It's a difficult name, but again, he's speaking to an individual. I, I urge you, sujigas, whose name means loyally oak fellow, to help these women, uh, to moderate the problem, to be a mediator. And these are the women who contended, verse 3 says, they contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. That's a very interesting phrase because it's taken from the gladiator arena and it speaks about gladiators standing toe-to-toe, fighting side-by-side against the enemies that are unleashed upon them, human or animal. Which means that these women had a significant role to play in the advancement of the gospel. Somewhere we've lost that emphasis found throughout the New Testament of the impactful ministry of women in the founding and in the encouraging, the advancing of the local church in the world. But here Paul recognizes it. And he says, These women contended with me in the gospel, along with Clement and other fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now he gives some imperatives to these people. After dealing with that relational conflict, he says in verse 4, Rejoice, in the Lord always. And if you didn't get it the first time, let me say it again. Rejoice. Whenever something is repeated twice, it's there for emphasis. And the emphasis here is on a very difficult thing to do in the midst of a very difficult situation. It seems like an impossible imperative. Rejoice. While I'm being persecuted? While I'm in prison? While everything is going against me? Yeah, rejoice. Because your personal happiness and your public witness depend upon it. Paul then gives another imperative, verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. Uh, Some translations use the word moderation. William Tyndale in 1525, in the translation of the very first English Bible, used the word softness. Let your softness be known to everyone. I like the word gentle. I think that's an excellent translation because the point is, don't be antagonistic. Don't be combative, either to the world on the outside or to your fellow laborers on the inside. Here's a direct reference to the problem that Euodia and Syntyche were having. Stop fighting with one another and show gentleness. No one was more gentle than Jesus. And no one was more of a man than Jesus. He was no wimp, but he was gentle. It's Christ-like. So, be joyful and be gentle. And then it's almost like a, a phrase just kind of thrown in there, but I think it's the center and crux of the whole passage. The last part of verse 5, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. That's why you need to be joyful. And that's why you need to be gentle. The Lord is near. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think it has two aspects to it. First of all is the spatial aspect of it. That is, the Lord is near to you. He's right with you. In fact, the Bible says, in Him, in God, we live and move and have our being. God is our atmosphere. 
The New Testament says when you're a believer, Christ is in you and you are in Christ. It's repeated throughout the New Testament. You can't get any closer than that. Jesus in you and you in Christ. God is your atmosphere. And David is the one who said, quoting Psalm 16, the Lord is at my right hand and I shall not be moved. The Lord is at hand. He's right next to me. And that's how you can be joyful in the midst of tribulation and gentle to everyone, not regarding people as your enemy, but as people who need the gospel. And that's why you can also have the command to be prayerful. The Lord is near to you, and you can talk to him, which is the next imperative that's coming. Uh, another idea of this, the Lord is at hand, has to do with his second coming. The Lord is coming soon. It's the sense of time. And this is the way it's used in James chapter 5. Jesus Christ is coming again. He is at hand. The Lord is at the door. And that should affect the way you live, right? I mean, think about it. If God is near to me, right next to me, and if Jesus is coming soon to initiate a new world order, should I not live differently? Should I not live like a citizen of heaven whose king is Jesus? And that's what Paul is trying to get these Philippians to do, to live differently as though Jesus is right next to them. He is, and because he is coming very, very soon. And so he adds a third imperative, be prayerful. That's verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Verse 7 is the glorious incentive to do this. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said of verse 6 and 7, Without a doubt, this is one of the noblest, greatest, and most encouraging statements which can be found anywhere in any extant literature. That is, any of the literature you can find that exists today, outside of the Bible or in the Bible, nothing comes up to the level of such beauty and impact as this great statement. Nothing surpasses it. It's one of the greatest, one of the noblest, one of the most encouraging. I'm convinced that no text of Scripture is more important from the standpoint of our personal happiness and our public witness than this portion of Scripture. That makes it pretty important. And it's one of those portions of Scripture that you and I know well. In fact, when it comes to memorizing Scripture, I suppose Philippians 4, 6, and 7 are in the top 10. Most of you who have memorized any Scripture, especially if you were in any Scripture memory program, if you've gone through the Awana program that meets here on Wednesday nights, you've memorized this. Many of us have it committed to memory. The problem is we know it up here, but we don't experience it here. And that's why we need to improve our prayer lives. We need to get serious about improving our prayer lives. And here is a great portion of Scripture to do that. So let's 
kind of take this section of Scripture apart, verse 6 and 7. And the first thing I want to highlight is this. Paul says, remove all anxious care. That's an imperative. Eliminate it. Abolish it. This chronic state of worry. So many people are bound in this whole idea of worry, so much so that uh, they're incapacitated. They're neutralized. They're paralyzed from living a normal life because phobias have taken over their life. And we multiply phobias to the place where they just conquer us. People are dominated by anxiety. I find it interesting to note that the old English word worry, or the word worry in the English, came from the idea of strangling something. <laughs> Isn't that picturesque? Worry strangles you from energy and effectiveness and health. The Greek word for worry comes from two different words. It's a compound word. The first word is to divide, and the second word is mind. So worry in the Bible is a divided mind. You're being pulled apart. One direction, hope is pulling you. In the other direction, fear is pulling you. And it's like you're on that, that old-fashioned torture instrument, the pulley. And it's just cranking up a few more gears until you're pulled apart. That's picturesque. Now, this seems also like an impossible imperative. Stop worrying. Don't do anything because of worry. And yet, really, this is the same thing that Jesus told his disciples, told the early disciples, in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember Matthew chapter 6? Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or drink. Don't worry about your body, what you're going to wear. Because is not life more important than food and your body more important than clothes? That was a rhetorical question he kind of left hanging in the air. And I'm sure some people didn't quite know how to respond to it. By the way, the, the proper answer is yes. <laughs> you, you, there is something far more valuable than food and clothing. And he gives two illustrations. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the lilies of the field. The birds of the air don't toil, and God feeds them. The lilies, the flowers of the field, they're not concerned about how they're dressed, and God clothes them, and you're more important than they are, right? And the answer is, right. <laughs> we should be concerned about environmental affairs, and we could, should be concerned about kindness to animals, but it really bothers me when people get more concerned about those things than the eternal soul of man. Man is the crown of God's creation. That is mankind, men and women, human beings. They have souls that live forever. That's important. Oh, yeah, animals are important. Treat them kindly. The Bible says that's the, what the righteous do. And our environment was created by God, and we need to care for that. But souls are more important than birds or flowers. I'm afraid some people don't believe that. You, you think you've been maybe believing what is being taught to you and you began to minimize the importance of a human being. The Bible tells us three times in this section of Scripture, Jesus said, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. 
Verse 34, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has its own set of problems. Deal with today. And I think the Apostle Paul is simply taking that portion of Scripture and applying it to his readers and to the people in the city of Philippi. Jesus said, don't worry because God cares for you. And Paul is going to say the very same thing. Because if you don't defeat worry, worry will dominate you. And if somehow you cannot fight against worry and win, you'll die young because you can't handle stress, nor can I. Dr. Kenneth Tipe said this about anxiety. Anxiety disorders are psychological illnesses related to excessive, uncontrollable feelings of worry. He said, now, anxiety itself is normal and not bad, even necessary. Ordered anxiety is good. It allows us to continually check out our environment for possible threats, to make defensive plans. Anxiety has survival value. We should be concerned about a dangerous situation and concerned for the safety of our friends. And all of this ordered anxiety causes us then to be properly defensive and aware. That's healthy. But disordered anxiety, says Dr. Kenneth Tepe, that can be very painful. It is excessive. It goes far beyond the possible threat. That is, it exaggerates the problem. And it lasts long after the threat is gone. So we make more out of the situation than we should, and when the danger is gone, we're still worried. That's what a disordered anxiety will do. Worse yet, it develops a life of its own. If there is no problem, it still can crop up anywhere at any time. That's disabling, isn't it? That type of worry? The person with disordered, type, uh, disordered anxiety begins to develop behavior to avoid that anxiety. So it won't be triggered. The avoidant behavior is part of the essence of anxiety disorder and determines its type. So we have panic disorder, social phobia, obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and on and on it goes. The phobias multiply and we are paralyzed and we don't know what to do. It's a horrible problem, unwarranted, unnecessary, but we still worry. In our emotional state, that leads to wrong thinking, wrong thinking to wrong feeling, wrong feeling, wrong behavior. Oswald Chambers said that anxiety, get this, anxiety is a species of unconscious blasphemy. Wow. Anxiety is really blasphemy. Or how about this? George Lyons said that worry is the interest that you and I pay on the debt of unbelief. I'm not going to believe God. The price you pay is worry. So what do we do? Well, this is what we do. We tell people, stop worrying. That's helpful. <laughs> Shows a lot of concern. And it doesn't work. It's useless to tell people to stop worrying. 
In fact, what people often do is that they then create a situation far worse than worry called repression. They just bury deeper into their spirit this anxiety. And then they bury more anxiety on top of it until they just come apart. You can't deny its reality. You can't just say, stop it. So we tell people, you know, your worry probably never will happen. 85% of things we worry about never happen. But that's not helpful because I say, what about the 15%? It might happen. It could happen. 15% is a high percentage. And if you're like me, you'll focus on the 15 instead of the 85. That doesn't help. Or we say, you know, by worrying about this situation, it doesn't help. And you say, I don't care. I still have to worry. It's just kind of the way I'm wired. I can't divorce myself by worry simply by hearing you say, stop it, or it doesn't work, or what I'm worrying about won't happen. I still worry. So what am I going to do? Paul says, I want you to replace your anxious care with habitual prayer. Don't be anxious about anything. Instead, in place of worry, use your energy to pray. Pray about everything, but pray. Instead of giving way to anxious care, a believer should take everything to God in prayer. And this isn't just theoretical. This needs to be survival mode. This needs to be very practical. It's replacement activity. The negative, avoid the anxiety. The positive injunction, submit yourself and every aspect of your life to God. And when you do that, then you can be freed of worry. Jesus said, submit your concerns to the God who cares, Matthew 6. The God who cares. Psalm 55 is a great psalm. Let me just give a couple verses to you out of that psalm. Maybe you can go home today or uh, if you're listening by way of the internet, you can spend some time reading Psalm 55. But it says this, verse 17, evening, morning, and noon, I will cry out to you, God, in my distress. So distress, get this, distress becomes a means of grace. Distress should drive us to pray. Fear should stimulate us to go to God in prayer. It should become a means of grace. When I face anxiety, when I feel it building up within me, that's a call to pray. By the way, if you pray every time you get anxious, the devil's going to realize that anxiety doesn't work on you, and he's not going to encourage it. You might have less problems. I don't know for sure. It just seems logical. But the devil's not going to be excited about heaping up trials upon your life or making you, you know, kind of get upset and, and, and because of your problems become stressed out if you turn every anxiety to prayer time. So it says in Psalm 55, evening, morning, and noon, I will cry out in my distress, and Lord, you'll hear my voice. Going down just a couple verses to verse 22. Listen to this. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. 
He will never suffer the righteous to fall. That means an ultimate fall. We might stumble, but we will not be moved from the secure position of being in Christ, justified, redeemed, and protected by his grace and power. So cast your care on the Lord. It's the prayer of verse 17 that is connected with the actual casting of our cares upon God. And we do that because he will sustain us. That's the problem, or the promise. I will sustain you. Now, the New Testament uh, commentary on that particular verse, the corollary in the New Testament, is 1 Peter 5, 7. Have you memorized that? Casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. That's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 6. That's exactly what the psalmist said in Psalm 55. He cares for you. And so you can bring your cares to the one who cares for you and unload your burdens, any burden, to him. Look at verse 6. Prayer is described with three different words. The first word is the general word prayer, and it means to worship. It means to come into God's presence and recognize your face-to-face. So before you get to the requests and the petitions, verse 6 says, pray. In other words, step into the presence of God with adoration. Recognize that I am face-to-face with the creator of the universe. That's where prayer starts, adoration. Recognize that you are now in his presence and God is near and he cares about you. And then unload the burdens. That's the word supplication or petition. Petition emphasizes the sense of our great need. The word petition or supplication emphasizes the fact that we are hopeless and helpless without God. Do you believe you're hopeless and helpless without God? You see, our lack of prayer seems to indicate that we don't believe that. I can get along pretty well without him. Now, if things get bad, I'll turn to him. But right now, I'm doing all right. And that's why we don't pray. The moment you and I are convinced we are hopeless and helpless, our prayer life will improve drastically. So that's what the word petition means. I'm someone in great need, and I'm going to come to God with a request. And the word thanksgiving means just that. You are grateful to God and appreciative. Pagan prayers were destitute of gratitude. They had nothing to be thankful for. Their gods were mean, vicious. Uh, Their gods would say, sacrifice your firstborn on the altar with fire. Their gods never promised anything good. They demanded everything from them. Our God's not like that. He cares for us. He loves us. He made us. And so we ought to thank him. Prayer trusts God's character. Thanksgiving accepts God's plan. So prayer has two parts. I come to God recognizing who he is and recognizing that I am hopeless and helpless, and so I bring my petitions to him, and I trust him. And secondly, I thank him 
because I'm going to accept his plan, whatever it is. And that's where the joy comes. You see, if I just go to God in prayer and unload my anxiety and complaints. Lord, where have you been? How come you haven't helped me? How come my prayer isn't working? I've been praying all this time and my prayer hasn't been answered. When are you going to do something? And you, amen. Oh, you're in a good state now, aren't you? But if you say before amen, Lord, I'm out of sorts. You know what's best. You're the sovereign God. As it says in the poem, he is over all the world ordaining and under all the world sustaining. You're the sovereign God. I am going to leave my burden with you, and I am going to trust you, and I am going to thank you. That's what we don't do in prayer. Thank God for our situation. Because we don't trust him. Parents, remember the first time you, you left your kids with a babysitter? Your first kid with a babysitter. Remember that? You were a wreck, weren't you? Now, you found the best babysitter you could. You wanted an older one with character and experience. But you were still a wreck. You called home several times. You got home early. You didn't really trust the babysitter. You were concerned. You gave your kid over to them, but you weren't really trusting them. Now, by the third kid, you'll give that kid to anybody. <laughs> Just a live body to stay with him. You're just out of prison? Well, that's okay. You're out. So watch my kid. I'm going to dinner. <laughs> it's a whole different situation. You learn to trust. I don't know if that's a good illustration of trust. <laughs> but you and I take our burdens to God and say, and I'm not so sure God can handle this as well as I could. Let me still worry about it. So I give it to God, but I don't. I call every five minutes. I wonder, I'm not concerned, or I'm too concerned, I'm filled with anxiety. To trust God is to unload your burden to him, and then to thank God is to accept whatever he does with it. That's prayer. Prayer unloads our burden, praise uplifts our spirit, and we take our grief to God and it's gone when our prayers are filled with gratitude. Anxiety cannot breathe in the atmosphere of prayer. Anxiety ends when faith begins. And you leave your heavy burden at the cross, and you go sin, go free, go sin, go free, as the old spiritual put it. Your heart is light. And you know what happens when you remove all anxious care by replacing it with habitual prayer? The result inconceivable peace. Look at verse 7. Here's the glorious incentive to pray. Here's the consequence. The peace of God. That's what everyone wants, peace. They want the cessation of war. They want the elimination of turmoil and stress. They want to be at rest. They want peace. Well, Peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is the reward and this is the prize. Peace. Alec Mortier said, if we want to enjoy the promise, we've got to obey the commands. Get rid of anxiety and pray. 
Pray with adoration and pray with petition, understanding your need, and pray with thanksgiving. And if you really give your burdens to the Lord, he will give you, in place of your burden, peace. You deposit your burdens, and God gives you a receipt called peace. You're entitled now to perfect peace. Did you know peace with God? Verse 7 peace with God, we will be able to maintain a relationship of tranquility. You have peace with God in verse 7 and God of peace in verse 9. Verse 9, it's the God who produces the peace. This isn't a worldly type of peace. This is divine peace. And by the way, it's Trinitarian peace. I love that. Verse 9, it's God, the God of the Father, the God of peace. Remember John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus said, my peace I give you, not like the world gives. It's a different quality of peace. It's a better peace. It's a lasting peace. The peace of the world is fragile. It's easily broken. It doesn't endure. My peace will last forever. Jesus said, it's mine, and I give it to you. So don't let your heart be troubled. And then we read in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and it's Trinitarian peace. It comes from the Father based on the merit and the work of Jesus Christ and it is produced in our heart by the Holy Spirit. This is peace. I mean, this is perfect peace. This is peace that will last. This, will peace, this is the peace that will revolutionize your life. And notice this peace transcends our understanding. Actually, there are two ways to understand this phrase. The first is that this type of peace surpasses all our futile attempts to create peace. It's the type of peace that surpasses human reasoning and human manipulating. And secondly, it's a peace that surpasses our knowledge. It surpasses our attempts to create peace, it surpasses our knowledge of peace. That is, it's mysterious. It's incomprehensible. It's, it's a peace that goes beyond our imagination. It's boundless. It cannot be fully understood. We cannot fathom its depths. You see a family that goes through a horrible trial, and yet they have this peace about them, and you say, how in the world do you have this peace? And they say, I can't understand it, except it's God's peace. Sent from the Father, purchased by the Son, given to me via the Spirit. Peace, peace, wonderful peace. Coming down from the Father above. It's that wonderful peace that God wants us to enjoy. Let the peace of God dominate your hearts, Colossians 3.15. Let it rule in your mind. Let it control your emotions. And Paul adds this wonderful picture in verse 7. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Hearts, the center of feeling and emotions. Mind, the intellect, the will, the imagination. And peace will protect it. All they had to do was lift up their eyes, and they would see around this tiny city of Philippi a Roman garrison. This is one of the cities we visited when we were in northern Greece on our last trip. And we, we stayed at Philippi, and you could just envision this little town protected by Roman soldiers, a garrison. 
They were protecting the safety of the town. And Paul said, you see the guard around the city? Yeah. That's what God will do with this thing called perfect peace. In John Bunyan's Holy War, it's called the man God peace who will patrol the town every night. Mr. God peace. And he will make sure everybody in the town is safe. Isn't that an amazing thing? Horatius Bonar put it this way, I stand upon the mount of God with sunlight in my soul. I hear the storms and veils beneath. I hear the thunders roll. But I am calm with thee, my God, beneath these glorious skies. And to the height on which I stand, no storms, no clouds arise. Oh, this is life. And this is joy, my God, to find thee so. Thy face to see, thy voice to hear, and all thy love to know. It was the old King James translation of Isaiah 26 that says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Why? Because he trusts in thee. Let's pray. Lord, give us that perfect peace that can only come from you, that Trinitarian peace that comes from the Father, purchased by the Son and applied by the Holy Spirit. Peace with God, the peace of God. And Lord, may it dominate our hearts and rule our spirits and garrison our minds so that we can turn away from all stress and anxiety. In fact, make them the means of grace to spur us on to more prayer so that we might leave every burden before you and know what it is to sing of perfect peace. In Jesus' name, amen.